Thanks for tuning in to the podcast of The Porch Church. We hope today's message blesses you and encourages you in your spiritual journey. If you have questions, visit us on the web, www.theporchchurch.tv. We're going to start with, uh, with a clip here, so pay attention again. Something's bothering him. Maybe he's too embarrassed to tell me what it is. Maybe I'm too embarrassed to ask him anything. I don't know. I just don't know anymore. Hey, well, I'm going to the downtown library. See you later. Oh, yeah, wait, Pete. I'll uh, I'll drive you there, buddy. Oh no, I'll take the train. No, no, no. I need the exercise. Go on. Go, 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 go. Thanks for the ride. Oh, man. wait a minute, Peter. We uh we need to talk. Well, we can talk later. Well, we can talk now if you let me. What do we have to talk about right now? Because we haven't talked at all for so long. Your Aunt Nan and I don't even know who you are anymore. You shirk your chores. You, you have all those weird experiments in, in, your, in your room. You, you start fights at school. We I don't didn't know. start that fight. I told you that. Yeah, well, you sure as hell finished. What was I supposed to do? Run away? No, no, you're not supposed to run away, but... Pete, look, you're changing. I know I went through exactly the same thing at your age. No, not exactly. Peter. These are the years when a man changes into the man he's going to become the rest of his life. Just be careful who you change into. This guy, Flash Thompson, he probably deserved what happened. But just because you can beat him up, doesn't give you the right to. Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Uncle Ben's wise words, with great power comes great responsibility, have echoed themselves throughout history. And for ancient Israel, their great calling and their great covenant demanded great responsibility. And so this is what the prophets are doing. They're telling the truth. They're retelling Israel's story to them about their covenant failure and about how they have misused their responsibility. Today we're going to be looking through the book of Amos. If you're new, you're finding us in the middle of a series called Overlooked. And we're going through the minor prophets. And the minor prophets are not minor because of the lack of their importance, but because of the length of their books. And they're overlooked because they were written, you know, during the 8th century to 5th century BC, which is nearly 2,800 years ago. Very few of us, you know, understand the depth of the history of that time. It's written uh, with a style of poetry and prophecy. And I think for a lot of us, these books just don't make sense. So while we tend to overlook them, we believe that there is actually profound wisdom in them and that they have a deep connection to the whole story of Scripture. And they unlock a lot of truth and meaning even for our lives today. So if you open with me to the book of Amos, uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Raise your hand, uh, the ushers will get you some, and if you're using one of our Bibles, it's in page 431, the book of Amos. 
So for me, I tend to really like the prophets. I love them. I feel like my personality kind of resonates with them. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you're probably thinking that seems a little cryptic. Uh, but I have always loved the sense of justice within the prophets. If you've ever traveled with me to East Africa, which there's some of you who have, I've kind of developed this reputation uh, for being really good at bartering. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, but I, if you've traveled internationally, you've traveled to Africa, you'd know that their economic system is kind of built around this bartering system. Embedded with, within it is kind of this relational, social nature. And so anywhere that you go, whether you're buying a car, whether you're buying food, or whether you're a tourist buying you know, souvenirs and things like that, you're going to barter for the price that you want. And in that, you know, there's kind of this, they have a high price, you pick a low price, and you kind of try to meet at a price in the middle. And I go into it with a fixed idea of the price that I want to pay for it, and what I think is fair, and what I think is right, and I will argue down to the very last penny so I can get the price that is fair. Now, I like to call this a sense of justice. If you ask my wife or my mom, They'll just say that I'm cheap and stubborn. <laughs> but this theme of justice is embedded all throughout the prophetic text. So Amos' accusation of Israel is that they have become unjust hypocrites. Amos is accusing Israel of becoming unjust hypocrites. Israel has used its great calling and their covenant with God to actually oppress the poor, to crush the needy. And their hollow sense of worship has manifested itself in economic injustice, materialism, religious hypocrisy, and God finds all these things disgusting. The context, if you put a map up on the screen, we're talking about the 8th century. Israel is the northern kingdom here. After the time of King Solomon, Israel theologically has split to two geographical areas. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah is where this place that a lot of you will know Jerusalem is at. But the capital of Israel is Samaria. And during the 8th century, Israel is under the reign of a gentleman named King Jeroboam II, and they have reached their highest heights. They're thriving economically. They're defeating all these surrounding nations in battle and in war. They're expanding their territory. And Israel during this time had this little phrase, probably sounds familiar, and it went something like, God is with us. God is with us. And they were actually longing for the day of the Lord when God would come, he would establish the ruler of Israel, and Israel would be the powerhouse of the ancient Near East. What they didn't realize is with great wealth, Great military victory actually led to apathy, idol worship, 
injustice and lack of care for the poor. And so Amos is going to come and tell Israel the truth. So if you'll open with me to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. So it says, The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, the vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the great earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, it's the southern kingdom, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he said, this is what Amos said, The Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is where the book gets interesting. Amos, this prophetic figure, is actually not from the northern kingdom. His contemporary, Hosea, is from the northern kingdom, preaching during the same time, but God calls Amos from the southern kingdom. Let's throw that map back up there. And from the southern kingdom near Bethlehem, near Jerusalem, Amos is called as a fig tree farmer, as a shepherd, just your ordinary blue-collar worker, to go and to preach to the religious elites, to go and to preach to the political figures of the day, judgment. You can imagine how nervous he is, but there's no one more well-fitted for this than this blue-collar worker who understands what it's like to be on the outskirts. The struggle of the people of Israel, though while the political leaders, the religious leaders are flourishing, there's oppression in the land. And God uses this man to come preach this message. And so he goes up to Israel, and you look, starting in uh, verse 3, chapter 1, all the way into chapter 2, and he, and he begins this interesting accusation by start, starting with surrounding nations. And he says, three sins of Damascus, even four. See Damascus on the map. He keeps going, and he says, three sins of Gaza, even four. Three sins of Tyre, even four. Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah. Let's keep that map up there. What Amos is doing is he's building these little circles. And at the center of his attack is going to be Israel. At the center of his accusation is going to be Israel. They're at the very bullseye. So starting in chapter 2, verse 6, this is what the Lord says to Israel. For three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground. They deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar and on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were tall as the cedars, so powerful, and as strong as the oaks. I destroyed their fruit above and their roots below. I brought you out of Egypt, if you remember Israel's story, I led you 40 years into the wilderness, and I gave you to, to this land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your children and Nazarites from among your youths. Is this not true, people of Israel? 
but you made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand on his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest of warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. Since every time Will, after these type of texts, uh, says, and so that's your sermon for the day, so enjoy, enjoy the rest of your Sunday, folks. I'll say it too. Is this the same family whom God delivered from oppression, the same ones he freed from slavery, the ones that he called and gave great responsibility to? You can hear almost God's emotion in the text, the deep disappointment and why. Chapter 3 begins and it says, Hear this word, people of Israel. The word of the Lord is spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. He's anchoring this in their identity. It says, You only have I chosen. Of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all of your sins. With a great calling and a great responsibility comes great consequences. If you remember correctly, Israel's story was anchored in the covenant that they had was all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And what he said to him is that I'm going to bless you. And you are going to be a blessing to all of the nations. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. That Israel's covenant existed for the sake of the world. It existed for the sake of the other nations. And that this was so that God could restore his good world that had gone astray. That he could redeem a broken and fallen world. And the vehicle that he has chosen to use becomes complicit with the systems and the structures of the day. And you can feel the emotion in God's heart. So we're going to get into this text and we're going to see how Israel's hypocrisy has manifested itself. Chapter 5, I believe, is really the crux of this whole book. And so if you'll join me in chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 4. This is what the Lord said to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile. And Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. These have become places of idol worship for Israel. We will sweep through all the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them. Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings a fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. 
You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. Those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord Almighty will be with you. Just as he says, he is hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord Almighty says, there will be wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. And to the nation that was longing for the day of the Lord, longing for the day of the Lord, Amos says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house, rested his hand on the wall, only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch dark without a ray of brightness. And here it is. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your song. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Eugene Peterson says it like this. I cannot stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects. Your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes. Your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take with your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness. Rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. While Israel was out oppressing the poor, living lavish lives on behalf of the marginalized, they go and they throw these elaborate worship services. And God is disgusted with it. So he says, you know what I want. And I believe that there are two key words all throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets, that we as a church need to understand. And I believe that it actually unlocks a ton of the scripture for us. And so these two words are this pairing, justice and righteousness, righteousness and justice. You see it all over the place. And it has a lot of depth, so I want to explain it. So we're going to begin with the word righteousness. In the Old Testament, it's pronounced tzedakah. Tzedakah. Will you say it with me? Tzedakah. Tzedakah means righteousness. Can we put it on the screen? I like to think of tzedakah as this idea of primary justice. Primary justice. Tzedakah 
Though we think of righteousness usually in terms of our internal or our moral piety, when the Old Testament talks about it, it actually has much to do with a relational term. How we treat one another, how we're a good neighbor. Tzedakah is right relationships between people despite social differences, economic differences, ethnic differences, geographical differences. It's how we love our neighbor. It's how we treat people. In East Africa, all throughout Africa, there's an ethnic group called the Bantu. The Bantu have a word, and it goes Ubuntu. And an Ubuntu is a righteous person. It's a good person. It's a person who does well by their neighbor. But an Ubuntu, at its core, there's a deeper understanding. An Ubuntu is someone who understands that my neighbor's well-being is actually bound up in my well-being. That I cannot say that I am well off if my neighbor is suffering, if people around the world are suffering, because their flourishing is tied up into my flourishing. This is the Old Testament idea for what it means to be righteous. And so what about justice? The Hebrew word is mishpat. Mishpat. Can you say mishpat? Mishpat is what I would like to call restorative or retributive justice. Justice in the sense it's the concrete actions we take to set things right. To restore where that primary justice has gone wrong. And so that can be in a sense of punishment, punishing evil or wrong acts so that tzedakah can be restored, so that righteousness and right relationship can be restored, or it's a restorative sense of justice. It's all about healing that which has gone wrong, bringing about the world that God ultimately desires. And so what does God want? He wants righteousness. He wants justice. And here is the center, the central theme of this book of Amos. That true worship of our God looks like acts of justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor. True worship of our God looks like acts of justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor. And so how does Israel respond to this message? You go to chapter 7. Starting in verse 10, Then Amaziah, the high priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all of his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. This is the high priest. Then Amaziah says to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary in the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people in Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. 
you say, don't prophesy against Israel, stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Well, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured up and divided, and you yourself will die a pagan in a pagan country. And Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. And this is what happens. So historic date, 722 B.C. For the northern kingdom of Israel, they're eventually destroyed by their neighbors, Assyria. Gone into exile, identity lost, completely destroyed. And Israel is just telling the truth about the consequences of their actions. You have to see, I mean, I know these texts are full of judgment, full of justice, and it kind of makes us queeze in our stomachs a little bit. But ultimately, what God desires goes all the way back to Abraham, goes all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve, that his world has gone astray, and he wants to reclaim it. He wants to make it whole. And so when there is evil in the world, God has to bring justice. He has to defeat the evil to bring about good. And so what does he desire from his people? Not to seek evil, but to seek good. To live lives of justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor. So this is how the book ends. There's a little bit of hope, a little glimmer of hope. Chapter 9, starting in verse 11. And in that day, the Lord says, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins. I will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and that the nations will bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring back my people of Israel from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them and plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never to be uprooted again from the land I have given them says the Lord your God. So I think the question we must ask today is how are we to learn from Israel's hypocrisy and disaster and embrace true worship of our God through living lives of justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor? You heard me say earlier that during the same time, Hosea was also preaching to the northern kingdom of Israel. And while Amos was focusing on Israel's hypocrisy and injustice, Hosea was focusing on Israel's idolatry. You have these pictures of idol worship, forsaking their true God, leading to injustice, hypocrisy. Theologians draw this conclusion that Actually, Israel's idolatry led them into these acts of injustice. That our lives, the way that we live, reflect the gods that we worship. Are you with me on that? Our lives are indicative of who and what we worship. And if Israel was worshiping this true God, 
who cares for the needs of the poor, the oppressed, and the needy, then they would care for them also. I like to say it like this, that we become what we worship. We are what we worship. Our lives are reflected in what we worship. And Amos had a vision seeing the people of God's worship to God, their vertical worship, and their horizontal relationships with one another married. That their vertical worship of God would fuel these horizontal relationships of righteousness, justice, and loving their neighbor. And for Israel then, and I believe for us today, this is not always the case. This is not always the case. Some, you see in American culture that our worship tends to be a bit me-centered, consumeristic. I like to think sometimes the water that we drink, the air that we breathe, the ocean that we swim in is this, these gods or this god of consumer economics. Well, what's this God like? Well, he's individualistic. He's purely self-interested. He's a materialistic creature who rationally allocates its income in order to maximize its happiness by increasing its consumption while doing as little work as possible. Maybe we wouldn't name that God to be like that, but sometimes I think our lives are indicative of that possibly being the God that we worship. This is reflected in the systems that we live in, the lives that we live. And here's the reality. I actually believe that the reason that a lot of us are here this morning is because we believe that that God is not really working out, that it's probably not the end to which we were made for. We can tell there's something wrong. We want to care for the poor. We want to bring good in our world. But our lives have very little capacity, very little margin. We're busy, we're exhausted, and we're trying to figure out how do we be that change that we want to see. Are you with me? Brian Fickert in his book, Becoming Whole, says it like this. The world that we live in, especially our workplaces, are focused on increased profits and increased growth. And we come home and we're drained and we're tired. And so we get home, we watch TV, we just seek entertainment. And then during this, we get these pictures of lifestyles. that make us feel dissatisfied with what we have and who we are. The rich, the famous, the glamorous lifestyles, the great travel, make us dissatisfied with what we have and who we are, our families, our material life. So we go out, we consume, consume, consume to become more satisfied with that sense of lack, and we do it over again. And I do believe that a lot of us are saying, and it's not working for me. 
It drains me. Anxiety's through the roof. Depression's through the roof. There's something wrong with the way that the West is. There's something wrong with this God that we're pursuing. And so here's the message of Amos. These gods, they have to go. They have to be crushed. They have to be destroyed. And we are to return to our God. The Hebrew word for repentance is shuv, and it literally means to return, to return to. And that's Amos' invitation. Would we leave this God that we worship, these gods that we worship, and would we return to our God and return to true worship of Him, which looks like acts of justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor? Our lives are indicative of what we worship. We become what we worship. So I believe that like Israel had a great calling and a great covenant, which came with great responsibility, the church has a great calling. It has a great covenant. We, the porch, have a great calling to shine the light and the love of Jesus into this community. And if our worship does not fuel a lifestyle or acts of justice, righteousness, and loving our neighbor, then we have to change. Then we have to turn in a different direction. So I'm going to end today by being very, very practical. And while I do believe that this manifests itself in each of your own individual walks, in your family, in your neighborhoods, the kind of person that you are, in your workplaces. I'm going to give you invitations on how this can be made manifest for how we do this corporately, together as a church, in ways that we are trying to love our neighbor and be a light in this community. So if you grab your bulletins, there's uh, some opportunities for you to just check off, for you to get involved. The first one, I don't know, some of you, most of you probably know, we have a school here called CCLC. And CCLC is not just um, an income generator. It's not just a school that we have off to the side. We believe it's very core to what it means to be the Porch Church, very central to our mission, very central to loving the families in this neighborhood, to raising up small little lights of Jesus, ones who can be people who can transform the world who can transform their own communities. And so this school is near and dear and very important to us. And this renovation that we're doing is not just because we want a cooler building, but so we can accommodate that heart change, that transformation in the lives of kids in this community. And so we have a renovation project going on. We want to save on costs. And so we need your help volunteering. There's this volunteer sheet back there. You can also check the box, but we would love, love, love for you to be involved in that mission, that purpose. Number two, we have an upcoming opportunity called the Dollar Car Wash, and it's our way of just simple, generous acts of kindness to this community. And so instead of having people come and pay a dollar to get their car washed, we're going to give them a dollar. We're going to love them. We're going to treat them with kindness. We're going to show them we're their neighbor. We want to get to know them and that there's no strings attached to this. And so I would love to see every single person in this room sign up for that. I know it's probably not a reality, but if you have, 
that uh, Saturday free, we would love for you guys to join us in being a part of the dollar car wash in just a simple act of loving our neighbor. And then finally, this opportunity is a little bit more near and dear to my heart. Uh, with, as most of you know, we have a partnership with what God is doing in Uganda through As One Ministries. It's an organization that I run. And As One's very, very focused on giving educational opportunities to very vulnerable students around the world. That's by building schools. It's by offering scholarships. And there, there's a great opportunity uh, to sign up, $30 a month, and you get to be partnered with a student. And this whole thing of poverty, the oppressed, the poor, actually gets to be made personal. You get to know the student, you get to be a part of their lives, and you get to see how simple just $30 a month transforms a kid's life. So I'm going to end like this. They put a picture up on the screen. Um, this little boy, back in, it was, I think it was 2014 for me. You know, I had a lot of questions about God, the story of Scripture. Where is God in the midst of the world's greatest problems, and what's the church doing about it? So I spent a summer in Africa, and those great esoteric questions became very, very personal to me. Uh, this little guy, his name is Derek Mukisa, uh, and I kind of went over there a little bit jaded, wasn't really all that interested in doing international development work, didn't really like the white savior complex and all of that, wanted to just spend some time over there and understand the plight, the situation. And Derek uh, he just did not leave my side the day that I met him. And as I lived in this community, couldn't really talk to him, but he'd follow me around everywhere. This cute little kid is when he was five years old. He's um, 11 now. And this five-year-old boy spoke no English. And I got to know him, visited his family. His dad had left. He had two moms. They weren't involved in his life. He had nine brothers and sister, sisters. And he was living in a tiny little mud hut with his grandma, sharing a, you know, a twin-size mat mattress with her. And they explained to me, Derek's not going to go to school because other kids are, you know, a priority. And I, you know, just fell in love with this little boy. I didn't really know what it would look like to help, how it would help. Derek ended up being the greatest inconvenience of my life. And the reason I still go back to Uganda today, the reason I started as one, very much has to do with this little boy. This kid who didn't speak English, this kid who didn't have an opportunity to get an education. And today... I look at Derek, you know, Greg could attest to it, Will could attest to it. It is a little boy full of leadership potential. Probably speaks better English than most of us in here. Serves as a translator for me. And so acts of righteousness, justice, loving your neighbor do not have to be this grand thing. It could be stopping on the side of the street over there talking to your neighbor and just seeing how God uses your ability to pay attention to someone else. That's all it is. I'm going to invite the band up and uh, let's pray. Jesus, we believe that you are what our hearts desire. You are who we long for. And that you teach us the way you are the way into understanding what God truly desires from us. We can look at you. We can know you. Our li your life can be infused within us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you fill us up? Would you lead us into small, simple acts with great love?
for other people, for the sake of the world. Would you help us to shine the light of this church into the community that we live in? Pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.